Well, let's pray one more time as we dig into God's Word today. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you for such a glorious time of worship. Who are we, God? And remind us, even now in this very hour, that we do not deserve to stand in the presence of so holy a God. Lord, your glory, your brightness, your splendor, your majesty as we sang, how majestic you are. And Lord, we're so grateful for the gift that we have to bring forth our supplication before your throne, to lift up our voice, to utter a prayer, to speak to you as one who speaks to a father. Lord, we're grateful that we have this relationship, that we have this access into your throne the throne of the king, the king of the universe, the one who has the scepter of righteousness in his hand and who can crush all of his enemies, who are we to appear before your throne of grace? And yet, so it is, Lord, because of your son and because of his great merit, his infinite merit, His infinite cross work that we can come, we can lift up our voice, we can beseech your throne of grace. And so, Lord, we say, help us. We need your help desperately in our lives. We're desperate for you, and if we're not desperate for you, oh God, we're even more desperate because we're not desperate. If we're not desperate for you, Lord, it's because we're in trouble. We're not desperate for you, Lord, is because we're satisfied with other things. And so, Lord, be that all-satisfying God to us. Fill us. Overflow in us. Help us to know something of the Bible that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Help us to know something of the sweet fragrance of who you are, of what you've done. Father, help us now, Lord, as we speak of your Spirit, Lord. This glorious Trinitarian doctrine, it is ours. It is ours to understand. It is ours to wrestle with. And it is ours to enjoy. And Lord, help us never to neglect your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we do not invite you here because you are already here. You don't need our invitation. You just need us to be open so that you can flow through us. And so, God, we pray. Thank you for your Spirit. Let the Spirit be in us to the point of overflowing. We confess that oftentimes the Spirit is alien to us, that we're unfamiliar with His ways and oftentimes unfamiliar with His operations on our soul. Lord, grant that we would know Him better. Grant that we would know Your Spirit to a greater measure. Help us, Lord. Enlighten our hearts today. Enlighten our minds. For we know it is by Your Spirit that You will do this. We pray these things, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after having a brief interval of Joseph Irvin preaching to us, uh, we're coming back now to the subject of prayer. And the title of today's sermon, again, is The Nature of Trinitarian Prayer. 
or the Trinitarian nature of prayer. That's even more accurate, the Trinitarian nature of prayer. That is to say that prayer has a distinctly Trinitarian character. And the Spirit's role is so extensive that I felt like we need to take the Spirit at one sermon. We did the Father, we did the Son, and now I want to focus all of our attention and sort of devote the entire time to the person and work of the Spirit and His relationship to prayer and the things that we have to consider about Him. And to serve our purpose, I think it's best if we look at the Spirit's role in prayer by asking, who is the Spirit and what precisely is the Spirit's role in our lives? We should begin then by pointing out that the Spirit is connected to the Trinity and that the Spirit is not separated from the role of the Father and the purpose of the Son, but is actually fundamentally one with Father, one with the Son. At all levels, they are one, ontologically one, in purpose, one, in sovereignty, one, in attributes, one. They are the same in essence, the same in purpose. And this is why I think the Spirit is called the Spirit of God. Because what it means to be the Spirit has everything to do with deity, with His, with His divine nature. The Spirit represents the Father as much as He represents the Son. These are sort of the interlocking, inter exchanges that go on between the Trinity. You have the Spirit representing the Father. You have the Spirit representing the Son. And, as Scripture tells us, the Spirit knows what is in the Father. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. The Spirit knows what is in the Son. John chapter 16, verse 14. That is to say, therefore, that the Spirit knows the thoughts of God. He knows the mind of God. He knows the will of God. He knows the wisdom of God. He knows the decrees of God. He knows the nature of God perfectly. He is equal. There is total ultimacy with the Spirit and with the rest of the members of the Godhead. And so we begin by simply saying the Spirit is God. That's probably one of the reasons why Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 says, calls the Spirit Lord. The Spirit is Lord. The Holy Spirit is also in His very root being a Christ-centered person. The Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. That's actually what He's called. 1 Peter chapter 1, Romans chapter 8, He is the Spirit of Christ. Acts chapter 16, He is the Spirit of Jesus. And Philippians chapter 1, He is the Spirit of Jesus Christ. That is His name. That is His title. That's who He is. This is why then Paul, when he speaks about our adoption into the family of God as sons, he refers to our adoption as being adopted by the Spirit of God's Son. Galatians 4.6 He is the Spirit that is sent by Jesus 
to further the purpose of Jesus on earth and among his people. He is the divine, if you would, missionary, spiritual missionary, spiritual emissary. He is the representative. He is the ambassador of Christ. He stands in the place of Christ, speaking the very words of Christ, speaking about Christ. He speaks Christology, and ultimately, he glorifies Christ. The Spirit is a Christ-centered Spirit because He brings more of Christ to the believer. To the believer. Through prayer, we have our communion with God through the Spirit. We commune with Him and He with us. We see this communion, we see this fellowship in three very important ways in terms of the operations of the Spirit. And those three things I want to focus on, namely, His indwelling, His illumination, and His intimacy. Our communion with God is first and foremost, therefore, a spiritual communion. It is a spiritual fellowship. It is a spiritual union. We do not see Jesus Christ. He is not here. He is not present physically here with us. However, we know Him. We commune with Him. We have a relationship with Him through His Spirit. He has, the, the Bible says the Spirit of God has been poured out into our hearts. That's the deepest part of you, your heart. In the Bible, the heart represents the seat of man's existential experience, the very essence of his emotions, the very internal aspect of his humanness. That is what the heart is. And there, in the most inner part of who you are, there is the Spirit with us, communing with us, fellowshipping with us, in union with us, provoking us, prompting us, leading us, speaking to us, convicting us, loving us, loving us, leading us as He does. Well, He leads us because He indwells us. That's the very first thing. In order for the Spirit to assist us in our prayer, He has to indwell us. It means that first He has to live in us. And if He's going to live in us, the very first thing He has to do is He needs to make us alive so that He can live in us. The Spirit does not live in dead people. The Spirit lives inside of living people. He is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. And He lives within the people that He Himself regenerates. Isn't that amazing? So, in the indwelling of the Spirit, in conjunction with that idea, is this idea. That the Spirit makes us alive in order to make us His home. He makes us alive in order to make us His home. This is one way of looking at regeneration. It means that the Spirit is involved in regenerating you, making you alive. So turn with me to John chapter 3. The Spirit is called the breath of God. Job said, the Spirit of God has made me. The parallel Hebraism there is, the breath of the Almighty has given me life. Jesus breathes the Spirit on His disciples. He is the sovereign breath of God that broods over the waters of the deep in Genesis chapter 1. The Spirit is everywhere. Isn't it amazing about doctrine? 
Oftentimes, you have to think on that doctrine, meditate on that doctrine, contemplate that doctrine, study the doctrine, think deeply about the doctrine, and then you see the doctrine everywhere in the Bible. Isn't that amazing? That's when you have those moments. You know, you talk about those moments that, that you've read that verse over and over and over, and all of a sudden you read it again, it leaps out at you, right? Something just grips you. I think it works like that. But the Spirit of God is totally and absolutely sovereign in calling us, effectually calling us, and calling whomever He wills. And so John 3, verses 5 through 8, Jesus is teaching both the, the undetectable nature of the Spirit and the unstoppable nature of the Spirit. When He says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, which I think means one reality rooted in Ezekiel 36. One reality, to be born of water and spirit, means one thing. It means a new birth cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I say to you, you must be born again. Here's his analogy. The wind blows where it wishes or you could translate that where he wills and you hear the sound of it but you don't know where it comes from he's undetectable and where it is going he is unstoppable he goes wherever he wants and then Jesus ties the phenomenon of the spirit or the phenomenon of the wind with the spirit when he says so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit of God or the Spirit. What is? So it is. So what is? So is the undetectable, unstoppable phenomenon of the Spirit. Just like the wind. You look outside, you see it's windy. Sometimes in Texas, really windy, scary windy, right? But you don't understand. You have no handle on the wind. You can't put the wind in a bottle. You can't detect its currents and where it comes from, the original. You go chasing the wind and try to find out where it came from and try to chase out all the global currents of the wind. Impossible. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. Just like you cannot finally detect the wind, you cannot at times with human ability detect the supernatural operation of the Spirit in regeneration when He makes you alive. When all of a sudden you wake up one day and you're a Christian. Oh, B, you are a Christian today. You didn't do that on your own. You didn't do that on your own. I didn't wake up on that August, whenever it was. Well, I wasn't awake. I won't tell you what I was doing. But God was working when I did not ask Him to work. God was invading a dead man and giving me life when I didn't even ask for it. You see, regeneration and salvation are not synonymous. That is a big theological mistake. When you think regeneration, being born again, in other words, genao, this word group that means to be born again, when you think that that is synonymous with salvation, you make a grave mistake. Because salvation can refer to glorification. Salvation can refer to sanctification. Salvation can refer to justification. But regeneration is something else. Regeneration is when the Spirit of God of His own divine will chooses to give you life, allowing you to believe in the gospel and be justified by faith. 
That's what the Spirit does. That's what the Spirit, how the Spirit works. And He works in us effectually when He calls us. Look at Titus chapter 3. Titus chapter 3 is one of the only places where the word regeneration is found in the Bible. The only other place I think it's found is in Matthew, and it doesn't refer to regeneration of an individual soul, but literally the transformation of the whole cosmic order, that regeneration at the end of time. But here he's talking about personal regeneration, and he says, but when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There's the idea of water and spirit. Water and spirit. That goes back to Ezekiel. Washing of regeneration and the renewal by the Holy Spirit who He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Prayer is something totally new for the believer. It is a conversation that you've never, ever, ever had before. I'm not talking about token prayers. I'm not saying you, were, you grew up in a Christian home and you were always around people praying and you even participated in some prayers and, and maybe you even prayed uh, growing up. The Bible says that when we do not have the Spirit, we do not have access God turns a deaf ear to the prayer of the wicked. As a matter of fact, the Bible says the prayer of the wicked are an abomination to God. How dare you try to violate Titus chapter 3, verse 6. How dare you try to have access to God without Jesus Christ. The Spirit ensures that you cannot pray without Christ. I love it. This is all, therefore, a result of the Spirit's renewal. The Spirit loves to make things alive. He loves to give life. He, he's going to make all things new one day, Revelation 21.5. The Spirit is always involved in creating. I already said He was there in Genesis chapter 1, creating. He's in the process of creation. And guess what? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, He is in the process of the new creation, which begins in your heart and in my heart. And the Spirit is there doing all of these things. The Bible, the, the psalmist says in Psalm 33, 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth are all their host. The Spirit is always involved in creation and making everything new. This is why the Spirit has decided to take up residence in our hearts through faith. The Spirit dwells in us, and this too is evidence that He plans to make us new, to make all things new. The Christian is evidence that one day God will have a new heaven and a new earth. You are the first fruit. You are the, 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 the initial, inaugural installment of that new creation. So, we are new people. The Bible says we're a new body. We're a new temple, new temple of God, where God dwells in the middle of His people. We are the temple of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Fascinating, fascinating. Especially as we were talking about in Sunday school, dealing with biblical theology and just looking at the themes, but that, that, that the Bible, where does the, the concept of a temple come from? 
if not from the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 says, Do you not know that you are the temple of God? And that word you is in the plural. He's talking to the church. You are the temple of God. And he says, And the Spirit of God dwells in you. Amazing. If any man destroys the temple of God, you might think, wait a minute, but God destroyed the temple in 70 A.D. No, this is not what he's talking about. He's talking about the church. He's talking about those that would come and build with false foundations, false gospels, false doctrine. That's the context. And he says, God will destroy him. God will destroy heretics, false teachers, because they are trying to destroy God's temple God's people, God's church. Not only, therefore, does the Spirit make us alive, not only does He make us alive to make us His home, but He also makes a pledge that He promises to keep. The Spirit is called many things in the Bible, and He has many functions and many ministries. And one of the most important ministries is the Spirit's ability to secure the believer with the hope of glorification. The way the Scripture talks about this is by saying that the Spirit of God is a guarantee. The Spirit of God is, a, is it like a payment. It's a pledge. It's a promise, to put it simply. It's a promise. God makes us a promise when He gives us His Spirit. And so turn to Ephesians chapter 1. God's pledge, the Spirit, is a promissory spirit. He's a spirit of things to come, namely glorification. Paul refers to this by talking about glorification as that which results in God getting what he wants. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of His glory. So the Spirit redeems us with what in view? This in view. That whatever is redeemed is God's possession. That one day God is going to get what He redeems. That's the context. And that's further proof of what John Murray's talking about in Redemption Accomplished and Applied when he says the language of redemption is rooted in the Old Testament. The Old Testament concept of redemption is that when someone redeems something, they obtain it. So if you redeem a slave, you get that slave. If you redeem a plot of land, you get the land. You don't redeem something and leave it there. Kinsman Redeemer redeems us, see? And so God, when He redeems something, He will get what He wants. So beautiful. It's just a different way to look at eternal security. Two times, Paul says that God gave us His Spirit so that, we, that He might be a pledge. Again, a deposit for 2 Corinthians 1.22. God has also sealed us and gave us the Spirit in our hearts as a pledge. Oh, thank God that He has given us that promise. The promise that He will take you home. The promise that He will redeem you. He will obtain you. He will glorify you. He will bring you into His everlasting arms, into His presence because, and you know that because, the Spirit is in your heart as a pledge, as a promise. 
The Greek word, araban, just means installment. He's just installed something, something that speaks of a future installment. So 2 Corinthians 5.5, 5, same thing. Now he who prepared us for this very thing is God who gave us his spirit as a pledge. Beautiful pledge. Not only does the spirit make a pledge, not only does it make us our, his home, but the spirit makes a people that he aims to purify as well. Not only does the Spirit's role in our lives work to promise us of things to come, but he also works in the present. He also purifies us here and now. That's why Romans chapter 1, verse 4 calls him the Spirit of holiness. He is the Spirit that fundamentally and above all things is characterized by the, the, the ultimate virtue of God, which is holiness. God is holy. I once had a debate, a friendly debate, and maybe you're debating me in your mind. What is the most important uh, attribute of God? And those types of debates, you know, they might accomplish something or maybe not. But I, I argued for holiness, right? And a friend that I was talking with, he, he was arguing for immutability. He says, no, God is immutable. I said, God is holy, as if these things are, you know, against each other. But think about the importance of the Spirit being the Spirit of holiness. Maybe He doesn't change, but if He's not holy, He's not perfect. Holiness means perfection, purity. You've heard of the perfections of God. That has to do with His holiness. So if God is omnipotent, but if not holy, then He may yield His power for unholy reasons. I tell you, I I take great comfort in the holiness of God. God can do no wrong. There's nothing that God does that's wrong. Ever, 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 ever. Never, ever, ever. Even if it says in the Old Testament, God sent them a deluding spirit. God deceived this person. Okay, those anthropomorphic language, you better work on that until you arrive at God is holy. No matter what doctrine you're talking about. The Spirit is totally, totally committed to our sanctification. He is committed to saving us. He is committed to regenerating us. He is committed to sealing us. He's committed to glorifying us. And He's committed to sanctifying us. So 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul, marvelously ties all of that together in one text, as only Paul can do. All of that, one text. 2 Thessalonians chapter 13, verse 14. No way to exposit this text or else we'll, this will be it right here. Um, beginning 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Don't let anybody ever tell you that election has nothing to do with salvation. I've actually heard people try to argue that. Well, we're chosen, but it's not for salvation. Wrong. You are chosen from the very beginning for salvation, according to Paul. It was for this that he called you through our gospel so that you may gain, or the Greek word literally means to obtain to obtain something, the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't that just incredible? 
You are going to gain the glory of Jesus Christ. You may think, oh man, I'm down here. He's up there. He's glorified. He's exalted. He's at the right hand of the Father. Everything's fine for Jesus. He's, at, you know, he's, he's ruling and reigning and he is over all power and dominion and principality and, and he's fine. But look at my life down here. And look at how I'm struggling, and look at how pitiful, and look at how miserable, and look at my state. Don't forget, brothers and sisters, you will gain the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's just unthinkable. We don't deserve it. That's the gospel. Unthinkable that we should gain from his reward as we sing. Why should we gain from his reward? Because he saved us of His own sovereign grace. He gave us His Spirit to regenerate us as the guarantee of our glorification and because He means to glorify us, He means to sanctify us. The Spirit will never give up in your life if you're genuinely saved. If you're a true believer, the Spirit is never gonna get to a point where He says, okay, that's it. I've tried. I mean, we've gone down this road a hundred times and you know, I've convicted him, I've convicted her, I've tried to prompt them, I've tried to lead them, I've tried to speak to their heart, i tried to use the word, I, I, I even, you know, bring certain sovereign providential dealings in their life, nothing, no, the Spirit will never, ever quit on your sanctification. That's why he's called the hound of heaven, God who promised is faithful. Philippians 1, 6, if he began the work, he will complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Now that is all because and as a result of the Spirit's indwelling in our hearts. Hang tight, we've got two more attributes, namely the Spirit's work of illumination. The sanctification process continues our whole life long and it is primarily accomplished by the Spirit's application of God's truth to our lives. The Spirit is called the Spirit of truth for a reason. He handles the truth. He spreads the truth. He knows the truth. He imparts the truth. And that's what illumination is all about. The fact that He will illuminate our minds with the truth. He has always done this. So turn to John chapter 16. John chapter 16. This name, the Spirit of Truth, it's given to him to highlight that role, that work, that idea that the Spirit imparts revelation to his disciples in the context of John 16, to his apostles that they previously did not have about Jesus Christ. Jesus says in John 16, verse 12, notice the need. It begins with a need, a void. There's a void there. I have many more things to say to you. <laughs> oh, you ever said amen to a preacher? Say on, right? Oh, I wish I was there. Say on, Lord Jesus. Keep talking. He says, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, see, it's not it. The, prep is the, the personal pronoun is masculine. He, when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak of his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will disclose that, and he will disclose to you what is to come. Amazing attributes. Did you get it? He comes. He's the spirit of truth. He guides. He speaks, and he also hears. 
the personality of the Spirit. I'm always reminded of R.C. Sproul's testimony concerning his wife when she was saved. She, she began to, uh, to recount to R.C. how she had come to faith in Christ, and she began to talk about the Spirit, and she said, I just knew the Spirit was calling me, he was telling me that, 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 that the gospel was true. I knew that he was speaking to me, and he said, wait a minute, who told you the Spirit was a person? See, she just knew. This is the work of a person in my heart. He's speaking to me, convicting me. He's imparting knowledge to me. He knows me. Those are all attributes of a person. I can't help but to make those sort of caveat statements as we're dealing with so much Trinitarian language. I can't help it. But he is the spirit of, of truth that comes to disclose to the disciples what is to come. He will glorify me for he will take of mine and will disclose it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore, I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. See, truth means that the Spirit would keep the apostles from theological error as they received and ultimately inscripturated the doctrine of Christ that the Spirit would teach them. It's amazing. This is supernatural revelation coming and being promised by, by the Son through the Spirit to the apostles. Now, we do not get such revelation today. We will never get apostolic revelation today. But what we do get, if you turn to 1 John chapter 2, and then we'll be in John 1 John chapter 4, but 1 John chapter 2, what we do get is a massive extension where the Spirit also works in our lives, not to give us divine revelation of, that should be inscripturated about the gospel, but of truth nonetheless. In the secondary sense, he says in chapter 2, 1 John chapter 2, verse 26, these things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. Again, there's a problem. There is deception. There are heretics. There is heresy. The gospel is under attack. There is danger. There's theological error that needs to be avoided in this life, in this world, this present evil age. And he says, as for you, the anointing which you have received from him abides in you. Now, I'm arguing that anointing is the Spirit's work in the believer, anointing them, spiritually speaking, indwelling them. And he says, and you have no need for anyone to teach you. That's amazing. What do you mean you got no need for anyone to teach you? So Pastor Emilio can just step down, right? You don't need me. <laughs> you don't need pastors, teachers, theologians. That's not what he means. That's not what he's saying. He says, but as his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, and just as it has taught you, you abide in him. So what the Spirit is doing is he's given the disciples, now the church, here's the Apostle John talking to the church and saying, the Spirit is going to work in your life to su in such a way and to such a degree that he will protect you from theological error. Ultimately, he will protect you from heresy. He will protect you from going in an unorthodox direction that will lead you ultimately down the path of apostasy. That's what the Spirit does. And that's why we hear testimonies of people saying, I was a Catholic before and 
I was saved in the Catholic Church, and over the course of time, I came out of the Catholic Church. I knew of a lady who had been saved in the Mormon Church and sat there for a year listening to Mormon teaching until finally she realized, wait a minute, this doesn't line up with what this is saying, and the Spirit of God ripped her right out of that cult. Even though they try to manipulate her and trap her and bring her back in, finally, because of the Spirit's ministry, the Spirit kept her from apostasy and error so that He brought her back safely to the gospel, kept her, preserved her. Look at chapter 4. Same thing. Same thing. I'm going to disagree a little bit with the translators of the NASB here, but chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, verse 6, we are from God. We are from God, and then there are those that are not. He who knows God listens to us, and he who is not from God does not listen to us. What is that saying? This is apostolic tradition here, saying that if you are of God, if you are one of God's, if God is to save you, if God is calling you, if you're God's elect, you will come. You will listen to the gospel. You will not close your ears off. There will come a time. There will come a moment where you will no longer harden your heart to the truth, but the walls will come crashing down and the Spirit will come invading in with the truth of the gospel. And if you are of God, you will listen. And the believers listen. He says, but by this you know the Spirit of truth. I think that should be capitalized. The Spirit of truth. God's Spirit and the Spirit of error, which is a satanic spirit, a demonic spirit that leads you to error, leads you to heresy. The Spirit's work, illumination, is so strong in believers, in fact that we are able to discern the deep things of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Go there. We are able to discern the deep things of God, verse 10. We know the mysteries of God, 1 Corinthians 4.1. We know the mind of God, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The mind of Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 16. The wisdom, the hidden wisdom of God, which God has revealed in the gospel, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7, and the nature of all things in light of God's counsel. So that Paul, in the end, says, look, there's the natural man and there's the spiritual man. So look at that verse, verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. But the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. You see, it is an epistemological problem. He reads something, hears something, studies something. He's exposed to propositional truth. He is exposed to ideas and concepts. He is, he is exposed to thoughts and doctrines and, and propositions and syllogisms, and he hears foolishness, total folly. And the greatest folly of all is this cross where God died, the Son of God died on the cross. <laughs> that is the height of folly. Conversely, it is also the height of wisdom for God and wisdom for the believer. He says, he cannot understand them. 
He is incapable. It's not just about total depravity. It's about total inability. He has no capacity with, with, from which he can pull. He has no resources to pull. He can't go, go to study Plato. He can't, he can't go study church history. He can't go study philosophy or logic. He can spend 1,000 years studying logical syllogisms, and he will never arrive at the truth of God's wisdom because it is not imparted through education. It's not imparted by having a high IQ. It is imparted by the illumination of the Spirit. They are spiritually appraised. That's why he can't understand it. Spiritually appraised. Spiritually understood. Verse 15, here's the contrast. But he who is spiritual, he appraises everything. Pass all things. He appraises everything. You, if you're spiritual, you can appraise everything. Appraising means that you can discern, that you have a right understanding. You understand politics. You understand medicine. You understand philosophy. You understand mathematics. You understand logic. You understand these things because you're a Christian. What do I mean? Look at politics. The kingdoms of this world are doomed to fail. The kingdoms of God and His Christ, they will come and reign and take over the world. And also, medicine. You know that medicine is limited. You know that ultimately you have a great physician that medicine can only go so far. It can only do so much to you. You see the truth behind the antibiotic that can't heal you. You see the deeper spiritual lesson, in other words. You can appraise everything. You look at culture, and you can just see through all of its facades and vanity and all of the fluff and all of the stupidity not because you're wise in your own self, but because God has made you wise. God has given you discernment that previously you did not have, brother or sister. It's not yours. The Bible says Christ is our wisdom. Your wisdom is only there because of Christ. That's why you're wise. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him but we have the mind of Christ. I just, oh boy, I could just stay there all day. The last thing is this. Not just indwelling, not just illumination, but finally intimacy. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God near our hearts. Near to our hearts. He is there in the deepest part of who you are. He is there to lead you. According to Philippians, or excuse me, Galatians chapter 5, the Spirit leads us. He's there to guide. He's there to convict. He is there to enable. So turn to Romans chapter 8 now, getting right to the point. Getting right to the point that the Spirit's ability to help us as we pray, as we pray. Romans chapter 8, verse 26. In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weaknesses. For we do not know how to pray as we should. You ever gotten to that point? I don't know how to express what I need to God. I don't know the words I need to say in this hour. And then the Spirit gives you the ability to speak, to keep talking to God. And he says, but the Spirit himself, he intercedes for us 
So not only does he give us the ability to pray, but he also intercedes on our behalf because he enables us. He says, with groanings too deep for words, there is a prayer language that no one can hear but God. That's what it's saying. The Spirit knows. The Spirit hears. He can interpret it. He knows the, 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 the multitude of words that silence speaks and moments when you're low, at moments where you're suffering, and moments when you're doubting, at moments when you're fearful, at moments when you lack assurance or you are far from the love of God as far as you can see. The Spirit interprets what's going on on the inside, and He tells it to the Father on your behalf. Amazing. And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is. That's God. But because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. See, the Spirit is always praying by the will of God, if that's what that means, unless it's referring to Christ. I don't know. I have to look at that a little bit closer. Isn't that amazing? All of the members, however, there in the Trinity, the whole Trinity right there working in your prayers, interceding for you, enabling you, listening to you, provoking you, prompting you. The prayers that God hears are the prayers that God gives, and He gives it to us through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. That is why Zechariah chapter 12, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Grace and supplication. He gives us the grace to pray, and then He gives us the words to pray. That is the Spirit's work. The Spirit's great goal and all spiritual influence, therefore, deals with, dealing with prayer is to enlighten us to the redemptive work of God in Christ in Christ, to show us the grandeur of salvation. That is what the Spirit is in us to do. And to show you that, finally, we'll go to Ephesians chapter 1. The Spirit working in us, Ephesians chapter 1, to show us the marvel of redemption. The marvel of redemption. Beginning in verse 15. He says, for this reason I too, Ephesians 1, 15, for this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease to give thanks for you. Boy, Paul said that a lot. While making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Isn't that amazing? Okay, whatever it means not to have apostolic revelation, that does not preclude the idea that the Spirit still gives us this type of illumination. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know, this is it, what is the hope of His calling? What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? That's talking about God's possession again. And what is the surpassing greatness of His power toward us who believe? These are in accordance with the working of the strength of His might, which He brought about in Christ 
when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the, heaven, in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. That's what the Spirit, <laughs> that's a lot, right? But that is what the Spirit is illuminating in our hearts. God's grandeur of redemption, what He has accomplished in all of His redemptive work, in all of that phrase that, that He says, He brought about in Christ. You know what that means, He brought about in Christ? It means all of the thousands of years that God has been working, and He summed everything up in Christ. That's what it means. And that is what the Spirit does by illuminating our hearts. So, the Spirit works in the believer's life by first saving him, regenerating him, by indwelling him, and then by illuminating him, and then finally by being intimately acquainted with him, with us. That is the Spirit's work in our lives. Let's pray. Father, Lord, again, we simply desire to know more of your Spirit, that the Spirit's work would not fail to reach its goal in our life, that we would, every single one of us, that we would know what is the hope of our calling, that we would know the riches of your glory, that we would know how you have brought about all of your purposes in Jesus Christ when you rose him from the dead. Oh, Lord, give us eyes. If we don't even know what that means, eyes of our heart. Give us eyes to see beyond the physical, beyond the material. As the Apostle Paul himself says, we look at the, not at the things that are made, but not at the things that are visible, the things that are invisible. Things that are invisible. Lord, we know that in them you have displayed your glory. We know that in the gospel you have put all of your wisdom, all of your riches, you have put all of your glory, all of your grace and your power all in the gospel so we thank you that we have a gospel-centered spirit that provoke us, provokes us more towards Jesus Christ. And it's in his blessed name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's close in this final song.